0: You have a copy of God's Word. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. What do we do when the faithful still doubt? What do you do when doubt creeps into your life? You know, there's a narrative that goes that to be a follower of Christ is to be one who doesn't experience doubt, but that's not. That's not true. It's not true of my experience. It's most likely not true of your experience. It wasn't true of the experience of a friend I had lunch with years ago. A strong believer of Jesus Christ who said to me, you know, David, I am confident that God loves me and he loves me enough that he would send his son, but I am not as confident today that he is concerned about the details of my life. Now, the details of his life in which uh, that we, we talked over lunch about, were a diagnosis of cancer that he received a couple of days prior to our lunch. It was the bearing of his father unexpectedly six months prior. For him, he traveled the path of doubt, and it was precipitated by a diagnosis. And maybe that's what introduced you to the path of doubt. Maybe it was that doctor's consultation room, looking at the plaques on the walls, uncertain of the future, uncertain of even the words that he was telling you or she was telling you in the midst of the diagnosis. In that moment, you could see the doctor talking, but but you didn't process the words, but you knew. You knew you were walking a path of doubt. Maybe it was death that led you down the path of doubt. Maybe it was being in the funeral home and everything seemed so sterile and it just seemed so unreal as you were looking at this uh, cast of caskets that you had to choose from and, and you thought just days ago we were hugging one another and now I'm doing this The path of doubt that you begin to walk. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. Sometimes it is sitting in a college classroom and there is a new teaching that seems to contradict what you've held to be certain. And it's in that moment that doubt creeps in. Maybe it is a conversation with someone who you love, who lives close to you, and you begin to realize that what you hold dear as your faith is not what they hold dear, and doubt creeps in. What happens when the faithful still doubt? What what do you do with the doubt that you feel? You know, there, there's some, and maybe you're in this very sanctuary and you just think to yourself that a part of the journey of Christianity is a journey that leaves doubt in the past. And it is a, an assurance that you always have from here to heaven. But most of us in this room, most of us in this room ha- have traveled down the road of doubt and we know the mile markers, we, we know the exits. Because we've been there, we've traveled it. Maybe it will be that you are traveling that road. I want you to hear that you are not alone as you travel that path. That the great chorus of the saints that have gone before us, that great cloud of witnesses, they have tra- they have, they've traveled that path. They have walked in the path that you're walking. And there's no greater example than the very patriarch that we're studying this fall. By the name of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, we're introduced to his path of doubt. Genesis chapter 15 reads, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, He, Abram, believed the Lord and God counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. There's just two points, two salient truths that I want you to hang on to in the midst of your journey of doubt. And the first this morning is that in the midst of our doubt, remember that God is our security. That in the midst of our doubt, remember that God is our security. After these things, did you notice That phrase that starts Genesis chapter 15, after these things, it's just this passing phrase that connects us to what has come before. A lot has come before. We don't know the time between Genesis 14 and Genesis chapter 15. We know these things, but the timing, be it days, be it weeks, be it months, we know not. But we know these things led him to the butts of Genesis chapter 15. Every time in Genesis chapter 15, you you notice that God is saying something, and Abram is responding with a conjunction, but. God is promising, Abram is saying, but, look around, but, what about this? Now, after these things, or the things that we've read about, especially in Genesis chapter 14, God gave Abram, the victory over these four kings, they retrieve back Lot and all of the possessions. There is this great victory that God gives them miraculously with these 318 mercenaries. And so, as they go back in Genesis chapter 14, they meet King Sodom and they meet the king of Salem. And in this moment, Abram, uh, he, he doesn't choose the way of wickedness. He chooses the way of peace. He chooses the way of alliance with God. And so you can begin to imagine as weeks go by or months go by, he wonders, will, will he be in the crosshairs of retaliation? Will these kings that God gave him victory over that we read of in Genesis chapter 14 say, where is Abram and how can we seek revenge against him? You can begin to imagine that these kings were wondering in the words of Shakespeare and Hamlet that they would be the croaking raven that bellows for revenge. And you begin to see that Abram is wondering, he's wondering, what will my future hold? And notice what God says. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his wondering after these things, the first words that we read, God speaking in Genesis chapter 15, are fear not. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That phrase fear not is a phrase that you are going to see again and again in scripture from genesis to revelation there is 137 occurrences of fear not or uh, do not fear or do not be afraid that you're going to see you're going to hear it when hagar is wondering if ishmael her son is going to live god is going to say through the angel of the lord fear not you're going to see Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, later on in Genesis, hearing from God, fear not. You're going to hear the angel of the Lord coming to a beleaguered Joseph who doesn't know up from down, left from right, as his wife is pregnant and the angel of the Lord will say to him, what? Fear not. And it is a good word for you to hear and for me to hear because God responds to Abram's fear with this promise that he does not have to fear because why? I am your, notice in your copy of God's word, I am your shield. Psalmists would say in Psalm chapter 3 Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many. Arising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. We need to hear these words, fear not. We need to hear these words, fear not. For you, God, are my shield. We need to claim these words, especially in light of the day and age in which we live where you are surrounded by the worst possible news that is upon your phone 24-7. The most heinous crimes that are committed across our globe are broadcast upon your phone every morning when you wake up. What communities would only grieve over, now the whole world feels as if that could happen in my very home. There have always been storms, but now we have through 24-7 cable news the ability to ride out every hurricane in real time. And we pray for people in South Carolina and North Carolina that have been be- beleaguered and, and battered by the wind and the rising waters. And we understand and we, we feel and we, and we respond with compassion. And, and we give to organizations that have at their heartbeat to come alongside from a Christian perspective the physical needs. Our church has a wonderful heritage and a, and a wonderful present and a wonderful future coming alongside of those who need to hear, fear not, for I am your shield. But this is the real truth. Florence, with time will be in our past, and there will be another storm that comes, be it six weeks from now or six months from now. And there'll be a whole nother set of news coverage, and there you are in your home, and you can watch that two days in a row, three days in a row, four days in a row, and you begin to feel as if the waters are rising around your own soul. You need to hear, fear not, for I am your shield. Now, what is Abram receiving from the Lord? He's receiving the truth that although he feels as if everything is uncertain, This is the truth of God. Your future, Abram, is not unplanned, nor is it unknown by God, although it might be unpredictable for you. I want to say that to you because you need to hear that. I need to hear that. Our future is not unplanned, nor is it unknown by God, although it is unpredictable to us. The great German reformer Martin Luther, he would pin the words that we continue to sing even in the church in the 21st century. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing our helper. He, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Now, now bulwark is not a word that we have in our nomenclature. It is not a word that we go around in good company saying, but you know what that means. It is a barricade. It's a shield. It is a wall. Real fears are coming at Abram. He is wondering, will retaliation be coming his way? And God says to him, I am your mighty fortress. I am your shield. So he promises Abram protection. But more than that, he promises that his reward will be great. Now this was something that, that jogged Abram's memory. He says, oh, oh yeah, by the way, You're talking about my reward being great. Do you know that I am still childless? Do do I need to remind you that you promised that I'm going to be this great nation and I'm going to be the father of it? And through my lineage, you're going to bless all the nations. But can I remind you once again that we do not have children? So, God, I know you got a lot of things going on up there, so I've got to take this into my own hands. In verse 3 is Abram's initial plans. It was a custom in that ancient Near Eastern world to take upon a servant if a husband and wife were childless and for the name to be passed on if you did not have biological children through one of your servants and your bloodline would continue on through your servant. So Abram is making provisional plans because God, in his mind, can't keep his promise. And so this is what God says to Abram. Come outside. Come out with me. Now, this is so far from us. We, we have so much artificial lights in our neighborhoods and in the community in which we love living, but for Abram... He looks up at the stars and and, and every star is shining upon him on that cloudless night that I can imagine. And some of you have been there where you go out and and you're you're hiking and, and you sleep on the back out west and you just can see this great canvas of creation that is before you and our galaxy that is calling out to you. There is a reason that you are here in this great expanse that is before you. And what God says to Abram is, go ahead and start counting them. One, two, three. You can't count them, Abram. And so your offspring will be what you see before you as you look up. And in this moment, we read verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15. As he has this great object lesson of God's creation calling down upon him, Abram believes the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness you have a pen, if you have a pencil, you want to underline verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15, you want to put a star by it, you want to put an asterisk by it, you want to put an exclamation point by it, because this is a place, this is a place that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Rome, he calls back to this very story, utilizing these very words to talk about the source of your faith and my faith. If you are a child of the Most High God, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior in faith and by faith, this promise is your promise. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is the promise that we are saved not by Our righteous living, but by the alien righteousness of God imputed to us through the salvific death of Jesus Christ. I think we miss this because we think, without looking at this passage, that Abram had climbed some ladder. He still doubts. Right when we get to verse 8, Abram is still going to be doubting, but in this moment, he trusts. That God is God, and God imparts to him what he cannot receive from himself. Faith in Jesus Christ isn't this. It isn't solving a riddle, and then by the time you get finished solving the riddle, then he grants you salvation. Faith isn't going on a journey that God gives us to climb a mountain and get into the top of the mountain, and then God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Rather, the portrait of faith is we can't in our own strength deserve nor merit the grace and mercy of God. This is the good news. That when we understand that and we call out to him, he gives us what we do not have in ourselves, in and of ourselves. And that is righteousness. That is holiness. That is right living before God. Some of you in this room are exploring Christianity, and you're exploring it in the wrong wrong ways. And what I mean by that is you've got, in your mind, that to be a Christian, you've got to clean up all of these things. And once you get your life straight, then you can kind of come to the starting line of faith. No. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your uncertainty, he meets us. And in that, he imparts to us what we do not have. It isn't get your act together and then become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's rather when we could not get our act together, he loved us in our messiness and he gives to us what we do not possess in and of ourselves. This is faith. This is your story if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So there are two points that I want you to see here from Genesis chapter 15. And the first point is, is that in the midst of our doubt, remember that God is our security. And the second point is, is that in the midst of our doubt, remember that God is our promise keeper. Now, I know this might seem redundant, but I want you to see the nuance of this. I want you to see how the story continues to unfold. Because verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15, Abram believes, but there's still doubt that is still lingering. And he says, now you've talked to me about lineage. But, notice what he says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Notice the next word. It's that conjunction again. But, but he said to God, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Have you ever been an exasperated parent? Have you ever had your children? I've heard of people doing this. I know not of what I will speak of in a second, but I've heard, I've seen it on television, where, where certain parents might have certain three children named Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan, and, uh, you know, and they, they might be 13, and they might be uh, 11, and they might be 6, and that certain parent might say to them, can't, can't you just trust me? Don't you just believe, just do what I say. And there's a sense where we parentally can sort of reprimand our children, quit asking questions, just say yes, sir, just do what I said. Now, notice what God doesn't do here. God doesn't lecture nor reprimand Abram in the midst of his doubt. Rather, what does he do? Well, it is one of the most interesting passages in all of the book of Genesis because I don't know where... And how you've experienced life you haven't experienced. What we're going to read of in a moment. He said to him, God to Abram. Verse 9, chapter 15. Bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat three years old. A ram three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. Cut them in half. And laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them Away as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. Then, verse 13 The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father's house in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give you this land." Notice the specificity of the plan that God institutes in the midst of Abram's doubt. Notice that he is renewing the covenant that he made in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram. Notice that God takes the initiative and it is God's purpose. It's not just bring me a heifer that you might find. No, bring me a heifer that's three years old. It's not just bring me any goat that you might find. No, bring me a female goat that is three years Not just go find a ram, but rather a ram that is three years old. God is specific. He takes the initiative. And in this passage, he opens up the plan that he has for the Israelites, the plan that he has for Abram. And he says, what I'm going to do in and through you is bigger than you. Now, this is a reminder. God loves us and he loves us individually. But we are a part of a great mosaic that is bigger than any of us in this room. That there is a plan and there is a sovereign will that we have the great joy of being a part of. But that plan and that sovereign will is bigger than every one of us in this room here today. We are part of something that is larger than any and every one of us here. There's no way Abram knew half of what God was talking about in this passage here. There's no, he, doesn't, he doesn't clarify Egyptian slavery. He doesn't talk about Pharaoh. He doesn't talk about Moses. He doesn't talk about parting the Red Sea. He doesn't talk about the iniquity of the Amorites in any specificity. He just hints at these things saying to Abram, this land, this lineage is part of something that is far bigger than you. Trust me. More than that, we read in verse 17 of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passing between these sacrificed animals cut in half. Now, we know from scripture that flaming torch and that smoking firepot that they represent that they're symbols. In Exodus chapter 19, we read of the flame at night that leads the Israelites in the wilderness. When Peter's preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there is the Holy Spirit that descends upon the church like what? Tongues of fire. So in Scripture, fire is utilized to represent the presence of the Lord. Now, if you are walking through this passage, and if I commissioned you to just paint this passage... Just painted on a blank canvas. What you're going to end up with is, is like a Salvador Dali surrealist painting here. You've got cut up animals. You've got smoking, symbols passing through. And it just seems so unfamiliar to all of us in this room. But to Abram, it wouldn't have been as unfamiliar as you might think. Now, what do I mean by that? In this ancient, near Eastern world, Kings would ratify land treaties. Well, they didn't go to a bank, and they didn't have lawyers set up. They didn't have all this copious material to sign. That's not how they did it. So what they would do is they would make an agreement with one another. There would be the sacrifice of animals cut in half. And each of the kings would walk between those cut animals in half. And they were saying symbolically, if I do not keep my side of the bargain, may a curse come upon me. Now notice what Abram does. He is sound asleep when God appears in these symbols and passes between these cut animals in the middle. What is God saying? He is saying, may a curse come upon me if I don't keep my promise to you, Abram. I'm taking it all upon me to fulfill what I've promised to you. Now this is good news, but it is specific news. Because Abram, he hears for the first time, you're not going to get to see everything I'm doing in and through you. Abram lives like you and I live in the truth that God's delay doesn't always mean God's denial. In your life and in my life, God's delay doesn't always mean God's denial. There's some of you in this room that have been praying, God, heal me from, and you can fill in the blank. And you've been waiting for weeks, months, years, child of God. If you are a Christian, he might not heal you on earth, but I assure you, heavenly, eternal healing is coming your way. God's delay on earth doesn't mean God's denial. We live like Abram between a promise and a fulfillment. We, like Abram, are followers of the Most High God. And as a Christian in this room, you are forgiven of your sins, but you live in between the promise and fulfillment. So, when will you be perfect? When will you be sinless? The Bible tells us, greater is he that lives in you than he is is in the world. But but you struggle, don't you? We all struggle with sins because we live between the promise and the fulfillment. We live between that, that great promise that he gives us and the great fulfillment when we meet him in the second coming or we meet him in death. And this is true for you and it's true for me. And this is where Satan wants to trip you up. This is where Satan if you are a Christian, wants to grab a foothold and he wants to lie to you, and he wants to lie to you around the assurance of your salvation, there are very few people who are followers of Jesus Christ who don't come to a path sometimes where they say, I live this way. How can I truly be a Christian? I've done this. I've said this. I've been here. How can I truly be a Christian? We begin to Look at our works and say, maybe this doesn't line up. Now, if you've truly accepted Christ as your Savior, if you truly are a follower of Christ... Satan will whisper in your ear and he will say this, you can't be a Christian because you've wallowed in pride. You can't be a Christian because of what you looked at in a lustful way. You can't be a Christian because of the gossip, because of the jealousy, because of the envy. You can't be a Christian. And we need to be reminded that Abram's relationship to God wasn't dependent upon his perfect obedience to God. He's still doubting even when God counts it to him as righteousness. And this is the promise of God. If you are a Christian, Satan will whisper, and he wants you to doubt the assurance of your salvation. He will whisper, you are not worthy of salvation. God cannot love someone like you who thinks what you thought and did what you did. And I want to give you the words to say to this thief. Get behind me, Satan. You sorry, no good liar. You will not steal the joy and the assurance of my salvation because my salvation is not dependent upon what I did or didn't do. My salvation is dependent upon the one who took upon himself the very curse of my sin. So get behind me, Satan. I am loved, I am forgiven. I am the child of the very one who one day will vanquish you forever, so never again will you lie into the ear of a child of the Most High King. This is our assurance. These are our words. There's a story. That's been passed along in church history of Martin Luther, the great German reformer, the writer of Mighty Fortresses, Our God, that I referenced even earlier in the sermon. And the, and the story is a story that has been, it seems, embellished over the years. It's an apocryphal story. It's the story of this: that Luther, when he was translating the Old Testament and the New Testament into German, what becomes the German Bible, he was in this isolated tower, and Satan appears to him and begins to rehearse to Luther. All of his sins, one by one, Satan accuses Luther through the litany of his sins. Now, the story goes this way, that Luther picks up a quill, he dips it into the ink, and he begins to write the sins that Satan lists. And then Satan comes to the end of this accusation, the litany of the sins, and and Luther says, "I, I think you forgot some others. And the way the story goes is is that Satan continues again in the second chapter and Luther is writing them all. And then when Satan is silenced, Luther writes the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all our sins. Now I don't know, I don't know what Luther experienced in that tower, but I know what Luther wrote and the great hymn that we continue to sing. And if you listen to the words, you don't have to even listen that closely. You begin to hear that story come true. In the lyrics of this wonderful hymn. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph. What? Through us. The prince. Of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. His rage you can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Let us pray. We thank you that that word is Jesus, the name above all names, our righteousness, our forgiveness, the source of our mercy, our life, our breath, that in and through you, Jesus, we have hope no matter what we feel no matter the mortal ills that seem to be prevailing the the floods that come our way that at the name of Jesus there is security there is hope there is a future and it is held not in our circumstances but it is held in you Christ Jesus we stand on that word of your name your victory our righteousness in our eternity, I pray for the person today that is is feels as if everything is turned upside down and doubt is winning. Doubt has won. I pray for her today. I pray for him today that he would look to you. I pray for the person today that has said, "I, I can be a follower of God, but I've just got to be better. I've got to do a little bit more." I pray that that person today will look toward you. I pray for the person today that is unsure about that diagnosis, unsure about your love after that death, unsure about truth after that denial, that today they would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to you. We look to you. We look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.